stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Profound Ruminations by Calliope DeGamowitz. Do you ever think sometimes that birds get lost? They're just flying around, hoping someone will give them directions, but no one ever does because they're birds? I don't mean to sound stuck in my ways, but I do think participation trophies are really getting out of hand. Take some real upper body strength to fire an elephant gun, and you're eight years old. There's no way you got that giant tusk all by yourself, Timmy. And don't get me started on your collection of human ears. Not buying it for a second. Keep it down in there! What if Catfish, the TV show, and 90 Day Fiancé were set in the same universe? Could they do a crossover event like Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder? Because I would watch that show. They are set in... They... That's not how that... (gasps) Is it too late to change our minds about Holland? I don't know who would care if it stopped being a country, and... Ah! My Wurlitzer! Wurlitzers are a privilege. Well, that's just fine, then. It's not like I've got anything else to occupy my time. Not that anyone cares. Not that I care if anyone cares. Not that they care. I don't care if... Well, I could have sworn this wasn't here a moment ago. It's a feather. Beautiful. Oh, not a feather at all, are you? You're a story, and aren't you a beauty? The Kleptographer by Britt E. Hvide. I wonder if... A story and a skeleton key. I think I'll hold on to you. Let's just... Well, all right then. That's what we call progress. Let's get down to business, shall we? The Kleptographer by Britt E.B. Vida The map of Hop moves under her fingers its topography rising and falling like the slow breath of a lover. All across it, 
Delicate pinpoints of light call out to her, highlighting the secret stolen parts of the city. A filched coin purse lights up a dark alley as its captor runs. An orca's soul shines from the bloody decks of a whaling ship as it pulls into harbor. One light shines brighter than the others, moving down the main thoroughfare. The nameless woman watches the light for a moment more than sighs and wipes a hand over the map to extinguish the lights before rolling it into a tube at her hip. She takes a breath to look down over the lip of the roof, wondering if this time the city won't catch her, if this time it will just let her go. And then she jumps. The city does its best. It sends an ocean wind that sweeps up in her short hair and long cloak, billowing it out behind her. But against gravity, the city can only help so much to slow her fall. When she lands on the cobblestone street, momentum buckles her knees, angles her forward, and continues, accelerating her towards the bright light. So it goes. Her neighbors pass by but don't notice her. Instead, they leave gaps in the crowd like a stream flowing around a rock. Each one is familiar to her as daylight, but she doesn't stick in their minds as easily as they do in hers. August owns the bakery. Martea is the boat builder's apprentice, and Hans sells fine furs. She slides past their memories, silken and slippery. Up ahead, the glow nears and excitement briefly flickers in her belly. Whoever it is has stolen something big, maybe even a life, and the idea makes her so strangely hopeful. Hap hasn't seen a murderer in years. Back when she first traded her past and her name for the golden lights, she'd been so useful, so powerful. Turning the chaotic violence of the city into order. But the city's been safe for years, and now in place of that righteous purpose, the nameless woman mostly feels nothing. A deep, aching nothing. Sometimes it's as if habit is the only thing that keeps her going. Obligation. She made a deal with the city. She is its chill wind, its benevolent spirit, its mysterious kindness. She is its heart. She is the angel of Hop. So she runs towards her mark. Under her feet, the cobblestones rise and angle, pulsing with her steps, pushing her onward. The angel rounds the bend, arms outstretched, hands grab, catch hold, bodies roll into an alleyway, crash against the wall, and she finds herself staring down a weathered man in a tattered coat. God's tail, he swears, voice strained under the weight of her fist at his throat. What have you taken, she asks, disinterest trickling into her voice already. On closer inspection, he's clearly no murderer. There is no telltale train of light linking skyward to his victim's soul. Just a petty thief. I haven't taken anything, I swear. But the lights never lie. Turn out your pockets, she says. Look, okay, so maybe I've nickered a few kroners here and there, but it's nothing big. And I promise I'm not here to cause trouble. I really just need you to let me go so I can get this job done. Empty your pockets. And now you're stealing from me, so I believe, he begins, but the look on her face stops him. From the pouch attached to his belt loop, he pulls out a bag of copper kroners, a small knife, and a worthless tin idol. It's clear the coins have been taken, but the glow is weak, and the tails leading back to their original owners are so thin as to be non-existent. 
Whoever he's plucked them from isn't missing them. Something is strange about him, though. Typically, the golden light comes from objects, or at least a thief's hands. But this light seems to come from just under his skin, pulsing with his blood like an ocean wave. Who are you? Mikhail, he says, puffing out his chest, and I suppose you're some member of some gang whose territory I've stumbled into. We don't have that here, she interrupts. They haven't had gangs in the city for nearly a decade. So you're the city watch, then? She doesn't correct him. Well, thank you, officer, for your concern, but I promise I'm here on business. I'm just looking for someone. She eyes the older man, watching him shift between nervous feet. Maybe she's gotten it wrong. Sometimes beautiful people end up accumulating stolen glances in ways they couldn't scrub away. But Mikkel doesn't seem the sort. His face is pockmarked, and though his chin has an attractive sharpness to it, he carries himself like a beggar. Who are you looking for, she asks, but the man backs away. Oh, it's all right. I think you've helped me enough today. I mean, I'd like my things if that's all right with you, but otherwise I really should be going. She looks at the collection she's confiscated and hands back everything except the knife. The city's windows wink knowingly in the sunlight as she pockets it. How will I protect myself, he protests. This is a big city. A man needs his wits about him. Not here, he doesn't but off before I change my mind about letting you free. He pauses, peering at her, as if he's not sure whether to fight or run, and finally says, out of nowhere, You've got dust in your eyes. She reaches a hand up to rub it away, but comes away with nothing, and when she brings her hand back down, the thief is gone. The angel watches as the thief travels from neighborhood to neighborhood, searching for whoever it is but he doesn't appear to settle anywhere, and the glow grows no dimmer. Mikkel is the first question she's had in a long time, and for the moment, it's as if the whole of her nihilism has been filled ever so slightly. Some mornings, she even got out of bed. She combs her hair and changes her clothes without the city's prodding sunlight or the concerned vibrations of its streets, something she hasn't done in months. Her mind hums strangely alive as she watches his bright light travel across the map, knowing something is wrong, but not knowing what. He doesn't take anything from the people he passes, just shines out like a lighthouse as he travels from dockside to mountainside to Potterstown and the ladies' gardens. A few times she follows him in person, just to make sure there isn't some issue with her sight or her maps. She follows him down Carver Street for a while, even sees the telltale slate of hand as he dips into a passerby's pocket. But the gossamer string connecting stolen things with their original owner isn't there. It's severed, as if the trinket has already been Mikkel's all along. Regardless, she pulls him aside. From his pocket falls a small daguerreotype of a young man. Have it, Mikkel says, unconcerned. No one needs it anymore. When she returns it, the woman takes it back with a look of great sadness. Her thank you is half-hearted and perfunctory. The angel's home atop Hangman's Tower is small and sparsely furnished, with just a small mattress on the floor and a desk laden with maps. The hangman himself doesn't know about the room. She's hidden it behind a false stone wall, and she doesn't think it's a good idea for anyone to know about her. She doesn't think she's worth knowing at all, really.
All she needs is her city and her maps and a dark hole to crawl into when the world becomes too much. She sees Mikkel now on the southern end of Hop, loafing through Dockside and a bright light suddenly blossoms near his position. Something is happening. The wind whistles past her window. The city whispers, get up, go to him. Within the hour, she's outside the peg leg, an inn famous for its fish pie, and Sven, the broad-shouldered proprietor who laughs often and knows everyone by name. But, as always, she escapes his notice like she escapes everyone else's. She lets herself be nothing. Mikkel is sitting right in the middle, talking with the baker, August. She hovers in the shadows, listening intently to their conversation. She needs to know what she's dealing with before diving in. I didn't know it different, August says, but then it's as if everything suddenly became clean. Mikkel laughs. <laughs> I've heard that before, but are you scared? A little. I can help with that, too, if you like. August looks nervous, pauses, considering. It's entirely your choice. Some enjoy a little fear. They say it gives them energy, Mikkel says. Nah, I don't need it. No reason to be afraid. The angel watches as Mikkel rubs his thumb over the baker's forehead, then holds his hands out like a priest, granting beneficence. For a second, nothing happens, and then a thin gold thread starts to travel from August's head to Mikkel's upturned palm. No, not to his palm exactly. It feeds under Mikkel's skin. It pools in his blood, thumping in time with his heart. She's never seen this before, but whatever it is, it is wrong. No time to think. She dashes forward. She has to break the connection, has to stop something. Barreling into Mikkel, she knocks his hand from their position, shoves him from his seat, and throws him to the floor. Golden threads spill out. Untethered, they tangle out in all directions. Light floods over the bar stools and tables, the sleepy patrons and their plates of steamed potatoes and dried reindeer. Gold is everywhere, and then it isn't. The room goes quiet. All eyes turn to her, and for the first time in her memory, she cannot control who notices her. They all notice. Eyes watch her with confusion, fear, curiosity, bemusement, boredom, searching, and a feather-light dusting of recognition. Have they seen her before? Why do they know this strange woman? In that moment, something pings into the angel's brain. Your name is Celia. The thought fills her with fear. The city, the trade, the golden lights, a history and a name she tried to get rid of. She doesn't know what it all means or why, but the realization sends her running out the door and she collapses in the alleyway, fighting with her lungs for breath. The world is closing in around her and also opening up. It's too big and she's too small and all she remembers of being Celia is flashes of a childhood and a life she doesn't quite recognize. The feelings of helplessness, anger, and aching loss. She reaches for her golden sight to make sure it hasn't changed as well. It hasn't and feels a hand pounding her on the back. The city wind whistles across the ocean waves. Breathe, love, breathe. And Mikkel's voice echoes its concern. You're okay, breathe, you're okay. But she's not okay. How can he even say that? What has he done to her? Gently, he guides her up, lets her use him as a crutch to stand. I'm sorry, she says. The angel of Hop, whose name is Celia, isn't sure why she's apologizing, since technically he caused all this. Maybe... 
It's the scene she made or her own confusion that makes her apologize. Maybe it's because what happened doesn't feel like a theft. Maybe she's apologizing to the city or to herself or just to the part of herself that is Celia. Nothing to be sorry about. I mean, except for the yelling and pushing and, well, I mean, an apology is nice, but it's okay. Really, it seems like you've got something else going on, Mikkel says, smiling like a whale, large and gentle. Let's get you something to eat, maybe. He helps her back inside, and she doesn't push him away. The people of Hup, they all see her now, dart around like schools of fish. One fetches warm mugs of brown coffee, another brings them potatoes topped with thick reindeer gravy. What happened? she asks, once the initial fear and panic has settled into a low hum in her belly. What did you steal from me? From August? Why does everyone know? She wants to mention her name, but something stops her. Steal? I didn't steal anything. August was feeling a little fearful about a life change he was making. I was just easing his burden a bit before you so rudely interrupted. The angel doesn't care for his joking tone. That doesn't make sense. I saw it. I saw you and the light. And then what light? He asks. The light of stolen things. He peers at her with the same curious expression as he had the first day they met, some calculus running through his mind. Do you mean the dust? So you see it as well, but he shakes his head. It's not, not stolen things, not light. It's hard to explain. It's like this dark dust that clings to things people don't need anymore, things they don't know how to let go of, sadness, regret, anger. So I just help them out a bit. That still sounds like stealing to me. Righteous indignation is a role she's familiar with, and in her distress, she latches to it like a mollusk to a keel. What? He says, confused at the turn in their conversation. No, it's not like that. They don't need it, so taking it gives them release. It's not stealing if they don't want it. But it is. Except instead of stealing coins, you're taking... She grapples for the right word. Difficult emotions from people. That's not, I mean, sometimes it's difficult emotions, but more often it's whatever's standing in the way of people growing, changing, getting better. That doesn't make any sense, she thinks of what he's done, taken away her ability to hide, stolen her identity and thrown it back at her. You can't know that's what they need. You can't just take things without asking. Most of the time I ask like with August, before you interrupted. But sometimes people need help that they don't know how to ask for. Maybe they don't deserve help then. If they were strong enough, they would be able to handle it themselves. But why should you have to? What's wrong with help? The issue seems circular to her, and frustration rises in her ears. Because, but an answer doesn't come, and they are both quickly distracted when more coffee arrives for the table. The proprietor, Sven, puts down a tiny marzipan orange in front of her. Something sweet to lighten your spirits, he says with a kind smile. Mikkel watches the angel thank him uncomfortably and settle back in her seat. You going to steal this away too? Mikkel laughs. <laughs> Not unless you don't like marzipan. She makes a face at him and takes a tentative bite. The flavor is like almond liqueur and midwinter festivals, and it hurts her teeth in a way she enjoys. Earlier you said you were looking for someone. Did you find them? He shakes his head. Not yet. 
but I think I'm on the right track. Mikael is a good talker, and that works because the angel named Celia isn't comfortable with talking much herself yet. In fact, she's uncomfortable with anything, but every time the inkling to leave hits, something stops her. A rain starts. More coffee arrives. The city sends warm vibrations up through the soles of her shoes. Stay! When she finally leaves Mikkel in the tavern behind, belly warm and head buzzing, the people in the street don't move around her like water anymore, but like humans recognizing other humans and moving aside. There is no magic to it, just consideration. A soft city wind ruffles her hair like a mother. You'll get through this, my angel. Over the next few days, the angel avoids the strange thief. Instead, she checks up on his victims. She drops in on August, who giddily tells her he's quit baking and is now going to fulfill his lifelong dream of being a sailor instead. Typically, her interactions are small in scope, perfunctory, tingled by fear and violence. What happened? Who did it? Where did they go? This conversation ranges. She learns August the baker keeps charcoal drawings of faraway places in a secret cupboard behind the flower. He builds model sailboats and dreams of lands that have never felt winter's sting. More alarming still, for the first time, she lingers long enough that he turns and says, But I've talked far too long. How are you? She sputters. She's not ready for this, but doesn't run away. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Later, she curls up in bed and sobs for no reason. Then she's overwhelmed and confused and scared of what it all means. Scared that the city will abandon her. Scared of what she's trying to run away from and scared of the powerful darkness that looms in the corners of her mind, ever ready to drag her under. In these moments, the windows rattle with concern. Hop sends her things to do, bright lights she can't ignore, problems she must solve, and the angel solves them. But that's not enough. The city knows it hasn't been enough for a while now. The angel is staring out the window when a face appears, four stories up, startling her from empty nothingness. An impulse flashes white hot, and before she can register anything else, she slides her knife from under her pillow and presses it against the intruder's throat. Mikkel's throat. It's just me, he yelps, his voice a few octaves higher than she's ever heard it before. I'm not here to hurt you. What are you doing? she asks, embarrassed. He's seen her lying in bed in the middle of the day, hopeful the image hasn't alerted him to how weak and useless and horrible she really is. She retracts the knife, sits back on the bed. <clears throat> Can we talk first about how you've almost murdered me three times since we've met? What is it with you and violence? he asks, rubbing his neck. How did you find me? he sighs. You think you're the only one with eyes? I'm a thief, and you're not as invisible as you used to be. But what are you doing here? She asks again. You trying to help me some more? The word help drips with sarcasm. I actually was hoping you could help me. Remember that person I said I was looking for? This gets her attention. Yeah? Well, he's been harder to get to than I thought. Usually I don't go searching for people. Dust doesn't call out. You have to stumble on it. But this boy, his father's been looking for him for a while, and he wants me to bring him back. I was just kind of wandering around the city trying to stumble on him before you showed up. I only see thieves, not runaways. Yes, exactly, Mikkel says. She's not sure she's ever seen him unenthusiastic. 
but he's a kid with no money who just ran away from home, which makes those the same thing. The angel sighs, shakes her head. She just wants him to be out of her room, out of her life. I think I can do something for you. Where did you last search for him? I've been looking all over, but most recently I heard he's in the hollows. She stands and strides over to the pile of maps, pulls out the corresponding one. Each street and alley is marked down in her own careful handwriting. In the early days, the light was everywhere, a blanket covering the city ever-present and painfully bright. She remembers how much the people needed her and how she'd started making maps just to keep track of it all, to get some semblance of organization out of the whole mess. Mikkel whistles behind her. These are really detailed. That's the point. No, I mean, they're like art or something. Have you ever thought, aren't we looking for someone? Yeah, sorry, he says. I think he's probably around here. At least that's the last place I heard. You see anything? She blinks on her second sight and the lights flutter into existence. Nothing stands out. It's all the dim stars of petty coins and minor cruelties. Nothing obvious, but we can follow a few of those lights and see where they guide us, she says. Failing that, the street children see everything. I thought you said it was safe here. Why are the kids on the street at all? Mikhail asks as she rolls up the map and sweeps a traveling cloak around her shoulders. The angel has been thinking about that a lot lately, why people run away, why they run from things like names and memories and families and histories. But she doesn't have an answer. Instead, she just shrugs and hops up onto the windowsill. Are you coming? And then she jumps. The children they interview are eager to talk. Most are lanky but not hungry, wiry with energy but with no malice to them. They haven't had to fight since they came here. The Hollows is a safe haven with an almshouse that provides free food and health care so long as the kids keep their noses clean. It's the one district the Angel's always been proud of, the first one she cleaned out. But until now, she hasn't been back to the Hollows since that night in the tavern. Something about Celia keeps her away, something that makes her feel lost and scared, young and desperate, something that makes her feel like the kind of kid who might trade anything for a little control over her life. This isn't some ruse, is it? She asks Mikkel when the sixth child in a row tells them they haven't seen who they're looking for. They've been looking for hours with no sign of him, and the afternoon sun has already begun its descent. It's almost like the boy's never been there at all. What? Why would it be a trick? You're not trying to reconnect me with my past or enlighten me somehow. He gives her a funny look, and she remembers she hasn't told him about her name or what really happened to her when he took away her ability to hide. I don't know what you're talking about, but Sven said the kid would be Sven. She stops him. Why would Sven know where he is? Mikkel shrugs, looks confused, and then his eyes go wide. You don't think he lied to us, do you? The angel doesn't respond just rolls her eyes and takes off towards Dockside. She's not sure how she didn't see it before, the bright gold spot hiding in the peg leg. Mikkel was there so often, she'd always thought it was him, and the last time she'd been there, she'd been so distracted that she hadn't noticed. But now that she knows it's there, she is alive with outrage. A kidnapping in her city? She pounds the cobblestones and the city bounces with her step, trying to help it like it always does. And once again, her neighbors slide by unseeing. This is the solution, she realizes as her powers come back in full. This is her chance to be useful again, to be whole. 
She bursts into the bar where the afternoon crowd barely startles. When they see Mikkel come in behind her, wheezing and out of breath, they wave, confused, before settling back down to their food and drink. Sven's not behind the bar, though, so the angel runs into the back room, where she finds him trying to lift a heavy beer barrel. She charges toward him. God, she hasn't taken down a good bad guy in years. Welcome back, but she punches him across the face before he can finish his welcome. Where's the kid, Mikkel asks, coming in behind her. He's not in the hollows, Sven asks, spluttering, hands up. No, you liar, the angel says, grasping for all her old vengeance and rage. This is the person she used to be before the nothing settled in. After she'd first traded her name, when the city was wild and dangerous, when it actually needed her, she punches him again. Where have you hidden him? Mikael seems shocked to silence to see her like this. But he doesn't matter now. She can fix this all on her own, just like she fixed this city. Sven gives in immediately, tears streaming down his face, mixing with the blood from his nose. The man was made for talking, and he doesn't hesitate now. He's my nephew. He was afraid. Needed help, please. I couldn't take him back. You don't understand. His parents, they... The words don't compute in the angel's brain as he continues. It's all been fogged over by red. What don't I understand? Have you kidnapped a child? He came to me. He needed me, he says. She pulls back to punch him again, but Mikkel shoots forward and grabs her wrist, pulled out of his shock. God's bloody tail, he swears, and she realizes he's talking to her and not Sven. What are you doing? You're going to kill him. A young boy barrels in through the door from the bar area and steps in front of her. Please stop. He didn't kidnap me. Bjorn, Mikkel says. The boy shines with stolen light, but it doesn't connect to Sven. The old barkeep is clean and dark. In fact, nothing about Sven glows except the fear in his eyes. Instead, a thin thread stretches from her own blood-covered knuckles. She's stealing something from the boy, and she backs away, shaking her hands, trying to give it back. Bjorn steps up to fill the space between them. Please don't hurt us. Please don't take me back. Please. In the candlelight... The boy's forlorn face and arms are a patchwork of fading bruises, all of them older than a week or two. Please don't make me go back, he says as the golden light threads from his temple to her hands. She's stealing his hope, she realizes, what little of it that hasn't been already taken. Sven staggers to his feet and wraps the boy in a protective hug. The thread between her and Bjorn snaps. Why did she think? They think he's got the devil in him, Sven says think the only way to get it out is to beat him for it. It's as if the angel had hoped for the worst, jumped at the chance to feel bone beneath her knuckles, to feel like she's used to, useful and powerful and in control. Mikkel steps in, calm and patient. I'm so sorry about this. We're only trying to help. His father sent me to bring him home and said the boy was confused and He's not confused. My brother, that's who's confused, wants him for farm work, but the boy's a dreamer. He wants to paint and sing and write, and I don't think there's nothing wrong with it. My brother's always had a temper. Never should have had kids in the first place. But I won't let you take this boy back. I won't. Bjorn sniffles while Sven keeps explaining, talking as fast as his lungs will allow him, and Mikkel tries to calm the whole situation, apologizing again and again. The angel backs away as she stares in horror at her hands. Why has she done this? But the answer is obvious. 
It's the same thing that makes her run past the breaking point of her muscles. It's what makes her jump out windows and land too hard just to feel the stone scrape against her skin. It's why the city is always cradling and protecting her, softening the streets around her to keep her from hurting herself as badly as she wants to. It's what makes her hate herself, hate Celia. It's all the same thing. It's all the nothing. She looks at Sven, who hugs the boy tight to him, the man who'd given her marzipan and warm coffee on that first horrible, confusing night. Blood still streams from his nose, but the fear in his eyes has receded to concern. It's too much. I'm so sorry, she says quickly. Wait, Mikkel says, but she's already out the door. Mikkel finds her in her tower, lying in bed, staring at the map of Dockside, watching Bjorn's steady little light shine on the parchment, wondering how to make it better, wondering how to give him back all the hope he's lost, the hope that she stole, that his father stole, that the world stole. But that's beyond her control now. Mikkel drops to the floor from her windowsill. Sven's going to be okay, in case you were wondering. I took away some of his pain, some of Bjorn's too, and I'm not bringing him back to his father. She nods, but she doesn't get up. The maps really are gorgeous, he says after a moment, trying something different. You should show people. She doesn't respond. Mikkel continues shuffling through her maps, pulling out different versions, admiring them, giving her space and time, giving her patience. Finally, she says exactly what's in her head. I thought, I thought going with you would give me the answers. I thought if I found this boy, it would tell me who I was. Like, like a test, she says. I thought you were trying to show me something about myself. Did I show you something about yourself? All it showed me was what I already know, that I'm worthless and weak and the city doesn't need me anymore. Okay, for starters, you're not worthless, Mikkel says, and you certainly aren't weak. Then why am I like this? Why am I so confused and angry and sad all the time? Mikkel sighs and kneels beside her bed. <laughs> Sometimes there isn't any reason to it. We're forged that way, or something hammers us out of shape. It's not something anyone can control. She sits with his words. Do you think my magic is corrupted? She asks. It's a thought she's had for a while. As much as the city loves her, as much as she loves it back, the job hasn't brought her joy for years. It's just been a job. Something to keep her moving, keep her heart beating for another day. Why would you think that? Asked Mikkel. I used to believe if nothing mattered, then everything mattered, the angel said. And that's what drove me. I fixed everything that needed fixing, followed all the threads to see where they went, protected the city from danger, and now that it doesn't need me, I feel... lost. At some point, this change happened and the equation flipped. I started thinking if everything mattered, then nothing did. Nothing is dangerous, he says, nodding. And I can't stop it, can't fix it. I know the city's trying to help, trying to fill the nothing with work, but it's not enough. I react all wrong. I'm still fighting and pushing and hurting myself and everyone around me. And then today, that boy, he wasn't taken. 
but I needed him to be taken so I could punish someone, so I could fill the nothing with purpose. He nods but doesn't respond, his gentle quietness making her feel safe. And I guess, I guess if it's not the magic that's corrupted, then that just leaves me. The angel, whose name is Celia, breathes in heavily, her voice shaking. She's not used to talking this much to anybody, let alone speaking this honestly. They both wait until her shivering breaths roll over and he puts a hand on her shoulder, its weight steadying her. You want help. It is a simple statement. Not, you need help. Not, you can't handle it on your own. Not, you're weak. Yeah. It's okay to need help, he says. When we first met, you said I had dust in my eyes. Are you going to take it away? Only if you want me to. The last time when I tried to stop you in August, I think you took some of the dust. People could see me again. I learned my name, the angel says. Maybe that's what you needed, says Mikkel. Other people to see who you are. Maybe you needed to know it too. But it didn't work. People saw me and the nothing came back anyway. Can I tell you something, Mikkel says. What? I have the nothing too. But you seem so energetic. It comes and goes. Sometimes that enthusiasm is just a mask. I have to remember to ask for help when I need it or people won't know anything is wrong. How do they help you? I don't know. It doesn't work all the time, but there's just something about being seen, being talked to and understood that helps. It's something. The angel rubs her tired eyes and sits up. Gods, we're a strange pair, aren't we? Mikkel laughs. Everyone is a little strange, I think. But yeah, sure, I guess we've got some extra stuff going on. If I let you take away the dust, will I still be able to see the lights? Do you want to? She thinks about it for a second. I don't know, she admits. Let's wait then. In the meantime, we can just talk. Talking helps too. How do normal people talk? I think we start here. Hello, my name is Mikkel. And you are? The angel of... But she stops. She's the angel of Hop, but she has another name as well, and that is something. My name is Celia. Nice to meet you, Celia. Below them both, the pink light of sunset glints from the city's windows, anxious, hopeful, content for now. The city loves its angel. It loves Celia just the same. Britt E.B. Feed is a writer and a Hugo Award-nominated editor. She studied creative writing and physics at Northwestern University. Originally from Singapore, she now lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their dog. Follow her on Twitter at bveed. Narrated by Lucy Pohl. Lucy Pohl is a German-born, New York City-raised comedian, actor, writer, and creator of Edinburgh Fringe and off-Broadway solo hits, Hi Hitler, and a Pole Calypse Now. Lucy has been featured on NPR, 
in the New York Times and is also the voice of Mercy on Blizzard's Overwatch. Acting credits include Red Dwarf, Homeland, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Carrie Will. We hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, Essaway, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. Have to find the others. I'm sure they're in over their heads. Can't file their way out of a children's library. A ship? Tacky soundtrack? I'll just take the wheel from these pirates. How about you? Ah! Ah! Put that down! Wait, is that a feather? It's a story! It unlocked my cell! You don't want to know what it could unlock in the human body. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? We came to rescue you! I was about to rescue you! Overstreet said he had a plan. He's right behind me. No, he's not behind me. Where the fuck did he go? I told you, no more Overstreet plans. Look, I, I'm not in a good headspace. I've been eating bugs. Ew. What was I supposed to do? Ew, what did you do? Well, we saw the Oracle, who was actually like a god of Oracle databases, who told us it's basically impossible to stop Spellingbound. <laughs> and the Oracle was correct, Renfield. I could have saved you the trouble of nearly getting memed to death. I mean, I wouldn't have, but I could have. Renfield, look, Overstreet has a new plan. Probably. I just remembered there's more Kafka Roach Terrine in the banquet hall. Ooh, that sounds amazing, and I... Wait a second. Ugh, fuck you. Enough! Finish your damn monologue. As I was saying, I've been gathering stories. With your help, of course. Thanks to your journey, I have them all. Summer Skin... Time for Squash. Homo hominy lupus? Make mine, uh, tomato juice. Little Red, the Verge of Utopia, our flag, all of them. And thank you for bringing me the vessel sailing into the underworld. I don't like where this is going. And now, my pretties, to me!
Oh, God! They're merging with Spellingbound! Who's becoming? Yes! The Scavenger's Nursery by Maria Devonna Hedley. I am your reckoning, and your reckoning is at hand! The Scavenger's Nursery by Maria Devana Headley. Narrated by Tatiana Gray. A boy finds a baby in the garbage. It's hotter this summer than it was the summer before. Everyone in the city is trying to get to the country, because in the city, the rat population is exploding. Rats themselves are exploding, though not of their own volition. Sometimes, rats swallow explosives. Sometimes, explosives are wrapped in little baubles of food. The boy, Danilo, has been doing some work in this regard. Rats are a renewable resource. Today, he's tracking a big rat up the mountain. Beneath his sandals is a hill of plastic and peelings, rubber, blank screens, glass formerly glowing, now reflecting nothing but sun. He looks through red knockoff sunglasses labeled Goosey. His feet skid on something. Something across the hillock ignites, and he looks suspiciously at the area, judging distance. Fine. No wind today. This mountain can be seen from space. It has a name. And on maps, it's part of the topography. It's only when you get closer that you can see it for an assemblage, invented earth. Secretly, the boy calls the mountain after himself, Danilo's Bundok, as though he's the first explorer to reach its summit. Beneath Danilo's feet, the mountain shudders. A quiver, a coursing, and garbage slides. In the town below, roofs clang with tin cans and automobile parts thunder down. It's a storm of junk. As the avalanche subsides, Danilo becomes aware of something at his feet, pushing out from the layers of refuse. The rat, he thinks, ready for it. It's long as his forearm. He nearly spears it, a wet black thing, its skin shining, blurry, dazzled eyes opening. But it isn't a rat. It is an animal, its flesh hard and soft at once, like a banana bound in iron. He'll take it home, he thinks, and make it a pet. He's owned other pets, some friendly, some feral. There's a chicken in his history, smut-feathered, beak shiny and perfect. And when he owned that chicken, he stroked it, until he lost custody and it became soup. This pet won't be eaten. There's nothing about it that looks edible. The thing blinks, showing pale yellow rubbery eyelids, somewhat transparent, and Danilo reaches out and picks it up. It shifts, comforting itself against his fingers, and he thinks, baby? Danilo once held his sister over his shoulder, her silken cheek resting against his neck, her fuzz of hair brushing his face and so he tries to hold the thing, using the same method. 
He jogs it a bit and coos, shifting his sack to the other shoulder. Below him, metal roofing vibrates in the sun, hot and glittering. But where he is, far above the town, he's king of the boondock. He considers his new pet. It's not a monkey, though it has a tail and grasping fingers. It has a feathery black fringe around its neck and small rough horns made of something very solid. No teeth, but a clamping mouth, the sort of mouth that would cause a bruise were it allowed to bite. It is very ugly. Danilo knows he hasn't seen everything. He hasn't seen the stars, though he knows they exist, or once did. On the mountain, he found a tourist magazine with a yellow jacket and photos of places all around the world, including the bottom of the sea, where a glowing jellyfish orbited in the dark, like a balloon caught in a current, floating higher and higher until the clouds took their color. Antenna tendril against Danilo's face. Radio, television, insect, whisker, he can't tell, but they belong to the baby. The little thing stares up at him, and he feels powerful. He might put the baby down and leave it here in the sun, or he might take it and save it. It's his choice. It makes a sound, a gurgling crow. Then it begins to cry. Danilo gives it a bit of his t-shirt to suckle at, and it clamps its mouth down on that, nursing at the dirty cotton, smacking. He considers for a moment, and then wraps the baby in the rest of his shirt, constructing a small sling. He makes his way, bare-chested, down the mountain toward home. As Danilo descends, the mountain pulsates. He looks around, wondering if there's a relief organization bulldozer bringing dirt to cover over some particular toxicity. But shortly, the quivering stops, and he continues, the baby sleeping against his chest. The last of the river dolphins. The last of the poisonous frogs. The last of the polar bears the last of the Siberian tigers, the last of the dodos, gone two centuries now, the first of these. A small boat moves like a hungover partygoer in Times Square on New Year's Day. Nets stretch out to take samples from the patch, bones and tangles. It's a glittering gyre, Colorful bits of wrapping and metal-lined sacks. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Somebody's music shouts from the cabin, and somebody else yells, Fuck off, Jack! That song's banned from this boat, and you know it! I miss the 90s, says the somebody, unrepentant. On deck, Rhea Barr sifts fingernails through her fingers. A container of decorated plastic press-ons fell from a Chinese ship six months ago, and here they are, as predicted. She's mapped their theoretical progress on a current chart. But no one ever knows what the ocean will do, not really. She reads the pale pink ovals, one letter at a time. B-R-I-D-E. As though a woman might need to look down midway through her wedding and read her fingertips to tell herself who she is. She puts one on each finger and crimps her fingers into claws. It's for the money, 
this cruise. Her student loans are due. Bride. Her other hands all glitter lightning and storm clouds. This is a particular kind of expedition, a sponsored sail through a plastic sea. The goal is to confirm that the garbage patch is growing, and also to confirm that it's drifting towards Hawaii. Everyone already knows this, but this is science. One hypothesis requires confirmation before another can be made. The scientists are mapping the boundaries of the mass. Garbage flows over the water like something fluid. But it's also distinct, each piece, something that can be captured in a net, examined. She imagines garbage crossing thousands of miles, drawn to this place, a kind of magnetic desire, drawing like to like. The world is collapsing under plastic ducks, hula hoops, water bottles. Were she plastic and thrown into a gutter, Rhea might be drawn here herself. She'd sail across the sea until she arrived in this civilization of crumple. She leans far out over the rail, squinting at something shiny moving in the garbage. Maybe a gull or a trapped fish. There's an ancient smell out here. Rot, salt, and darkness. There's a kind of weird beauty in the reinvention of an ocean. It's not as though things have never changed before— It isn't as though what she floats on wasn't once ice. And the land she walks on when she's at home, that land was covered with ocean, the sand full of bones of the sea. She thinks about that when she feels like pretending that none of this is really going to have repercussions. There was oil geysering up in the Gulf of Mexico. The oil was in the news for a while and then mysteriously gone, as though some giant mouth beneath the ocean sucked it away. It isn't lost. That much oil doesn't get lost. But the world is content to believe that water is big enough to win. Rhea has vials full of water thickened with photodegraded plastic, a slurry of children's toys and dildos, of baggies, shiny leggings, medical tubing, and plankton. And all of it looks like the same thing. It looks like water. Sometimes she dreams of dropping to the bottom where none of the world has gone yet. But even the deepest vents are full of mermaid tears and microplastic. The arteries of the earth are clogged with hotel room keys. The world's ending, yeah. It's begun to bore her, the sort of horror that's dull when considered too deeply from the deck of a research boat out in the middle of the Pacific. The thing in the garbage patch is still moving. She watches it idly. There was a storm last night, and today the mass has rolled over. New things are visible. Bodies of gulls and fish skeletons. Dead jellyfish wrapping about indecipherable gleam. She aims her camera at the thing, zooming in on its motion and filming it. She'll post it to the vessel blog. Look at this, expedition donors. This bit of plastic that looks like an animal. Look at this unthing that looks like life. The unthing looks back at her. What? She says quietly. And then her voice rises. What the hell is that? It's not a seal. It's not a shark. It's not like anything. A cloud drapes itself over Mexico City. 
yellow with gasoline and cigarettes and souls. It hangs there like something solid, low enough to graze the skyscrapers, putting them to their original task, that of touching the fingers of God. But the cloud is not birthing a god. It's birthing another cloud, small, dark, heavy, wet. In an office building in London, a janitor pushes a waste paper bin down a hallway. Inside the bin, a plastic sack of shredded accounts rustles against coffee grounds, newspapers. Its heart is full of decapitated payables, receivables, half-words and splintered sentences, crumpled muffin wrappers, its blood, copy machine toner, and printer ink. The newborn lies at the bottom of the bin, too wobbly to support its own limbs. The janitor swipes a mop along the floor and dumps waste paper baskets. And each time waste paper joins the mass, the baby at the bottom of the bin grows bigger. Danilo puts his garbage baby into a box and feeds it fruit. It rattles and bears its tiny tin teeth. His sister looks into the box once and gives him a look of confirmation. Yes, Danilo is a devil on earth. Yes, he would adopt a thing like this. She runs from the room spitting tattle like she's a can full of crickets. Danilo's mother looks into the box, but doesn't really see. It's dark, and all she can make out is a tail and fringy black ruff. That'll get too big, she says. Better put it out now and save yourself the pain. I'll just keep it a little longer, Danilo says. Don't get attached, says his mother knowing he will. These are the sorrows of having a son. Daughters are more bloodthirsty. So the baby grows. The mountain outside shudders and shakes, shedding layers of garbage, earthquaking, and the baby cries. Danilo worries about it. He isn't feeding it the right food. He gives it a Coke. It whirs like a motor and grows fat and sleek on sugar. It sleeps in his bed. It eats a bicycle tire, then a bicycle, broken and twisted after a run-in with a car. Danilo looks at it, assessing its appetite. The mountain is there, and periodically, a particularly succulent piece of garbage surges up through the layers, a gift for the baby's belly. Rhea reaches over the rail, the fake fingernails three inches longer than her fingertips. The un-thing swims to her. She hauls it aboard. The garbage gyre roils and then is still. The creature is small and light, its body covered in aluminum wrappings and fingernails, bones of fish, a bit of kelp, a tentacle of some dead cephalopod caught in a net. It has a black beak and large, lidless, hazel eyes. The other scientists examine it, brows furrowed, tweezers taking samples. They argue. It's a gull covered in oil. Maybe it drifted in from the gulf. No, it's some other seabird, messed about in garbage and plastic. At last they decide that it is, it must be, a creature that's been mutated by the plastic water. They photograph it, post the photo to the vessel's blog, and then send the photo to Noah, asking for backup. People take notice. A contingent rises up and screams about the end of the world. Beast numbering. Signs. The unthing curls in Rhea's stateroom, 
wrapped in a heat blanket, opening its beak periodically for food. Its tentacle twists around the bottle. The only woman on the ship, and here she is, feeding a baby. She's appalled, repulsed, guilty. She can't bring herself to think about what sort of baby it is. It'll become a paper in Nature. She'll be the head author, career-making, new species. She looks at its glassy doll eyes. There was a container of 5,000 drink-and-wet baby dolls lost from a ship late last year. She'd originally thought of tracking the baby dolls instead of the fingernails, but decided it was too much metaphor, mapping a sea full of fake babies. Though she should have known they were coming, Rhea isn't expecting it when the helicopter lands on their pad and the uniformed men get out. They'll take the unthing away from her, probably to a laboratory to be dissected. She looks into the baby's eyes. If anyone's going to kill it, dissect it, display it, it will be her. Rhea carries it to the helicopter. She cradles it all the way to Washington. She feeds it styrofoam cups and foil-wrapped candies. She doesn't croon to it or lullaby it. She learns it. That's her job. Does it have reflexes? Yes. Can it speak? Also yes. A mina, a mimic. She knows things about it that the other scientists don't. It's intelligent. She'll be damned if she lets it pass through her fingers without... Without what? She wants to know where its mother is. It didn't come into being out of light and photosynthesis. It was born from the patch. The creature's mother is drifting toward Hawaii. In the laboratory, Rhea looks at the creature. And the creature looks back. It opens its mouth, stretches its jaws, and crumples itself back into a ball. It lives in a tank, beside the tanks of the seagulls and the ocean fish to which the lab is comparing its DNA. Rhea doesn't feel sympathy for it. It's more complicated than that. And also simpler. She feeds it a classified document which gives it codes for the entry into any locked door in the building. Later, the baby will use the codes to open its cage and rustle out. Later in the night, it will become a top secret. But for now, she passes it a latex glove and watches as it sinks its teeth into it. A heap of cell phone parts glimmers green as beetle shells. Children sort them. A goat minces its way through a thousand ghost voices, recorded messages crushed into oblivion, texts, naked photos, emails, and pleadings. The goat's white-yellow fur is splashed with turquoise powder from a festival that's now over. It nibbles at a bit of metal, faintly annoyed at the new thing rising from the heap of broken. Children crouch on their heels and watch as a newborn creature stands, twelve feet tall, flashing in the sun. It opens its mouth and screams. And all across the sky, satellites tremble. This one, at last, hits the international news, but is dismissed as a hoax, hysteria, mass hallucination, some sort of techno-environmentalist Bigfoot. Eyes roll in the countries that still have all the money. The creature in the photo is convincing, and that is to the credit of whoever made it, but that's all. The monster crawls into the forest, its feet still tender, bruised by rocks. After a time, some of the children creep into the trees to feed it. Children are better at feeding monsters than adults are. They don't have the burden of suspicion. 
Danilo finds the baby standing in his bedroom one day, with a rat in each of its claws. They struggle, upside down. Rats aren't food, he tells it, suddenly anxious. He can't tell whether or not the rats are explosive. The baby is six feet tall now, but still doesn't sleep through the night. Its long tail is whippy, and it knocks things down. It's becoming difficult to keep the baby quiet in his room, though it folds itself small when it sleeps, and he's reminded again of the tiny creature it was when it was born. It requires bottles of oil and dirty water. It needs gasoline. When Danilo fails to feed it on time, it bites at itself. When he fails to feed it what it wants, it bites at him. He feels exhausted by responsibility. It eats the rats. They explode inside its belly. Danilo cringes, hands over his face, simultaneously hoping for freedom and fearing disaster. But the baby doesn't die. It grows bigger. In a forest in Montana, a newborn made of sawdust, splinters, engine oil, and bird's nests encounters a thing with a chainsaw. It picks the thing up, looks at it curiously, considering its purpose. Satisfied, it crumples the thing in its giant hand and throws it away, off the logging road and into the river where it floats for a moment, a bright, chaotic piece of red and white garbage. The body sinks, slowly, and the fish eat it. The rest of the logging crew is speechless for only as long as it takes to dial the police, who bring news crews along with their sirens. The monster stands in the place where it was born, Is it confused? Does it care? It is unclear. The newborn's still standing there when the loggers surge around it and cut it down. Hysteria begins with that footage, worldwide. Danilo's baby eats more than its weight, making its way onto the mountain at night, scavenging cars. It speaks to the mountain, until one day, the mountain itself stands up, raining down on all the people surrounding it, and walks away from the place it has always been. The mountain carries its baby in its hands, and Danilo, standing in the doorway of his school building, covers his eyes. Danilo goes about his business, what business there is. Rats explode. His family flees the city. At night, he looks out, and as the world gets darker, the stars are, for the first time in his life, Occasionally visible. Rhea Barr lets the monster take her with it when it leaves the lab. It carries her in its arms, and she looks up into its glassy eyes. When it opens its beak to speak, it says, Bride. It says, Love. It says, Sleep. It swims out into the sea, and she rides on its back free of her student loans, her publication graphs, the way she prayed for an article a year, the scientists who've told her, despite her accomplishments, that she's not their equal. She still thinks of dissecting the monster, but now she feels like a dissected object herself, a doll made with soft materials and stuffed with batting, a thing fallen off a ship and floating. She no longer minds. She sings the song from the rock and roll band, the end of the world song, and the garbage monster, the mimic, sings with her. And I feel fine. There are guns, of course, and bombs. There are thoughts of nuclear strikes, but the summer is hotter and hotter, 
and at first, the monsters aren't killing many people. Those they do kill, they crush efficiently, placing them in sloping piles in the dirt. Scientists and politicians deliberate. They try bombs, but bombs do nothing. They try poisons and guns. One monster curls up into tiny pieces of garbage and then resurrects from each piece a thousand-headed hydra, an impossible excess. More emerge newborn from buried trash, destroying houses and buildings. The earth wears a mantle of paper and plastic, tin cans, DVDs, and all of it is hatching. Perhaps the cold will kill these creatures made of useless things. The research supports it. Blooms have always ended, and waters have always run clear again. Eventually, even plagues of locusts starve and fall out of the sky. And the humans, what humans remain, will do as they've always done. They will shovel. Live and let live, say some. Already dead, say others. Use everything, say still others. The people on Earth who've been living in places where everything has already been used look out across the dry plains, at the dry crops. They move into caves. They set fires around the perimeter of their camps and villages because the only thing that keeps the creatures away is fire. Those people survive. The ones who are used to excess do not. They hide amongst their own stockpiles. And there, the conditions are right for births. Even a scrap of paper forgotten might yield a newborn. Even a toothpick or a rind. Even the dead might yield a newborn. And in a city with an underground full of paupers' unmarked graves, things shake and stir, and skeletons assemble into horses large enough for the monsters to ride. These are the new conditions to become accustomed to. But this is the planet shifting. Earthquakes have flattened cities. Cities have been murdered. The ice has melted. The world adjusts, after screaming and panic, to a new normal. The monsters keep to themselves, and most of the remaining population of the planet does not eventually care. The garbage sleeps at night, and sometimes someone tries to kill it with a gun or with a knife, but it doesn't die. The rivers run and drift into the sea, lazy, twisted currents, water traveling into lakes and into sky. The garbage moves through the water and rains from the clouds, floats and drifts, and slowly makes a changed world out of a mess. The documents from this period are public now. The deaths, called mysterious, of the team of scientists sent to examine that first seaborne baby, the way they were, months after they harvested it from the Pacific beach, crushed in its tentacles and torn by its beak, the way the hazel eyes blinked when its head moved to swallow them. The way Rhea Barr, the scientist who fetched the baby from the water, was the only one spared as the laboratory was torn apart from the inside out, returned to metal and glass, and how that broken metal and glass rearranged itself into something new. The way more babies were born from this new garbage, and how they emerged from the building, flooding the parking garages, swarming down the street, overturning cars as they moved, turning the cars into wrecks, turning the wrecks into more of themselves. A bloom of babies, a swarm, a plague. And can joy be read between the lines of the official prose? 
Vindication, certainly. The world was indeed ending. Certain of the official documents reflect that conviction. Everything was beginning again. Slates were wiped clean. The president gave an address, of course, an emergency state of the union. But as he spoke, he realized that all he could say was that people should stay away from the garbage. Fresh Kills Landfill walked into New York City, miles tall and miles deep. In Rome, Monte Testaccio took off the trees on its back and stood up to trample. Its body, made of the shards of ancient amphora, once full of olive oil, now coated in lime. The rules of the world changed. There was an evolution, a shift in everything. The last of the senators, the last of the secretaries, the last of the chieftains, the last of the burlesque dancers, the last of the astrophysicists, the first of these. The city is empty. The streets stop moving. The nights get quieter and darker. Danilo is one of the last left in his city. And as he grows older, sometimes he sees the garbage mountain walking, moving past his shack, and beside it the smaller body of its baby, walking with long strides, a slipping thing with a hard shell, horns, a black plastic fringe fluttering in the hot breeze. Beyond the city limits, there's a new mountain, this one made of human bones, and in its layers, the rats move as they always have, turning the secrets of centuries to sediment. Somewhere in the Pacific, Rhea Barr floats on a raft made of detritus, her back supported by plastic bottles, held above the surface by the fingers of soda rings. Her hair is long and white now, and it trails into the deep, and her eyes are blind from too much sun. Some things are still as they've always been on Earth. There are fewer people, but they still fight and still fuck. Some people are frightened of the dark, and some are not. In one of the cities, a human throws something away. A dog finds it in the garbage, snuffles it, and barks. And a gleaming, clattering creature kneels and picks the garbage up, carries it away, cradling it, rocking it. As it's carried, the human baby cries, a thin cry, and then it's soothed by the thing that has found it. This green-skinned creature sings out a lullaby in all the former languages of the world. For more signal, for can you even hear me, and fuck you, just go and fuck yourself if you're going to be like that, I'm telling you I'm done, and I love you so much, oh my god, I love you so much, and I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone before, and the creature opens its mouth wider and vibrates to all the satellites, to everyone who has ever occupied the place it occupies now. It holds the human baby in its metal hands and talks to the sky. I'm losing you. It trills in every language ever spoken through telephony. I'm losing you. Jersey. 
Maria Davana Headley is the New York Times bestselling author of eight books, most recently *The Mere Wife*. Her new translation of *Beowulf* came out from FSG in August 2020. Her stories have been shortlisted for the Nebula, Shirley Jackson, World Fantasy, and Tiptree Awards, and regularly appear in Year's Best anthologies. Narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana Gray is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen, and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She does, however, have a feature film hitting the festival circuit called *Serious Laundry*. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. See more about Tatiana at www.tatianagray.com and her email tatianagomberg at gmail.com. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Nikki Saint and Chris Kenny. Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act Two, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors.